Hello, I'm Anthony Nagel with Lowercase Capital LLC, and today we're going to talk about financial portfolio construction and management. Before we get into the discussion, first the disclaimer. This material is intended for educational and informational purposes only, and you should not construe any of the material as investment, financial, tax, legal, or other advice. None of the material should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, or endorsement by lowercase capital LLC to buy or sell securities or financial instruments. Please consult a financial professional before making investment decisions. So today we're going to look at the concepts of financial portfolio construction and management from the perspective of a theoretical investor who's in their mid-30s, single, with no kids, no major debts beyond a car loan, and has a secure job that pays slightly above average. This person has expressed a goal of saving for their retirement. The investor is willing to take some risk by investing in order to potentially accelerate this growth, so the plan is to build a long-only portfolio with moderately aggressive positioning. So where do we start in constructing a portfolio to meet these goals? Or to ask the question a different way, what do you think when you hear the term portfolio construction? What are we talking about here? Are we talking about stocks? Are we talking about a vast library of real estate holdings? What about physical precious metals? A portfolio could include some, none, or all of these assets, depending on the suitability for the investor. Today we'll talk about a portfolio process I've named the portfolio pyramid. The portfolio pyramid is a data-driven, repeatable process that aims to provide a framework for designing a financial portfolio. The process starts at the bottom with determining the capital allocation structure. This is where we look at the financial foundation of the investor. How much money do they have in savings, checking, what about debts? All this information is vital when considering how much money could or should be allocated to a brokerage or individual retirement account. Next, we have to decide what investing strategy or strategies would be best suited for the investor and their goals. Common investing strategies are value, income, growth, momentum, and passive investing. Maybe the right answer is a combination of some or all of these strategies. It could also be the case that the risk tolerance and goals of an investor mean that the right strategy is one that's more unique. In any case, it's important to identify and state explicitly the boundaries of a strategy in terms of risk level, asset allocation, and goals. Now we have a choice. With the strategy elements defined, an investor could then look for mutual funds or electronically traded funds that meet the requirements for each of the selected strategies. The other choice is to make the selection of underlying securities ourselves, and we'll discuss both methods. Our final topic will be risk management. Now that we've identified the strategies and sometimes even the specific securities in which we'll invest, we need to answer the question of how to allocate between these strategies. Does the relative allocation between strategies change based on some market activity or other information? Similarly, are there times when we want to reduce either our gross or net exposure by considering cash or hedges to our investment? We'll take a quick look at how these decisions could be made for the purpose of illustration. I previously mentioned that we would be discussing checking and savings accounts. 
Why do you think we'll cover these topics in a discussion about portfolio construction? Would anyone like to take a guess? All investing comes with the risk and the eventuality of some loss. It's important to have the ability to continue your selected investing strategy when these losses occur so that the paper losses don't become realized losses. Selling out of your investment strategy to pay for immediate term expenses can mean doing so at a price that is less than favorable. Properly allocating funds to checking and savings accounts will help to minimize the likelihood of needing to make a withdrawal from your brokerage account at an inopportune moment. It's perfectly fine to withdraw money from a brokerage account as long as the withdrawals are planned far enough in advance that the positions can be gracefully exited. Up first is the checking account. This is where your pay comes in and your expenses come out. I'm not aware of any checking account that offers a substantial interest on deposits, so the key features will be more related to quality of service. These days it's common to have a bank with no fees, no account minimums, a feature-rich tech platform, and a standard list of branch services like cashier's checks and notary services. So the main area a bank will be able to distinguish itself is through less obvious things like the quality of their customer service and their funds availability policies. Wouldn't it be inconvenient for your operational account to always have to wait a day or two more for funds transfers than a competitor bank? And how about overdraft protection? Is their service set up to pile on fees when unexpected things happen? These are just some things to think about. In terms of funds, I would say it would be ideal to have a balance equal to a couple months of required expenses. This will help to ensure that transient and short-term financial bumps have a minimal impact. If our theoretical investor was a small business owner, a commission-based employee, or a member of a professional partnership where income is less consistent, then perhaps a bit of extra cushion would be wise. The majority of the time, if someone has a savings account, it will be at the same institution that they have their checking account with. And I'm not saying that's a bad idea, but it's possible that the bank which provides all the quality of life services that are important to your checking account is not the same bank that has the best savings APR. Maybe there are alternative institutions, such as credit unions or online-only banks, that offer a high-yield savings account. As long as the fund's availability policies and customer service of these institutions meet your needs, you could gain a few points of APR. Because our investor has a stable income and a properly sized checking balance, I would expect that they would not need to make a savings withdrawal in the course of a typical year. The balance of savings should ideally be another month of operational expenses, such that it would be a truly exceptional circumstance that would cause both the checking and savings account balances to approach zero. In that circumstance, the number of months of financial cushion these funds provide should allow for the graceful exit of some or all the brokerage positions the investor has, avoiding the need to withdraw at the bottom of a drawdown period of a strategy. Quickly, the simple questions of how much should someone have in their checking and savings can become complex to answer. Setting a strong foundation of checking and savings is every bit as critical to investing success as the strategies and securities selected. Before we get into the investments, I also want to touch on debt very briefly. Debt is a normal and often healthy part of the capital structure of a family or business. I bring this up in the context of a financial portfolio because a credit card with a zero balance can serve as additional emergency funds in a manner similar that corporations can from time to time lean on a line of credit to pay for operational expenses without impacting more strategic finances. 
Now when it comes to investing strategy, every person must determine for themselves what strategies are suitable for their financial situation, goals, and risk tolerance. For this theoretical investor, they're interested in growing their account size and are willing to take some risks to do so, but no need to be overly aggressive. They're in a comfortable financial position with enough cash reserves to allow for graceful exit of strategies with at least 12 months notice. Based on that information, we'll build a compound strategy which is heavy on equities. Here we can see an allocation featuring value and growth stocks with a minority of the funds allocated to gold and currency strategies. This moderately aggressive positioning meets the needs of the investor while not taking more risk than needed. Please take note of the cash and directional hedges. They don't themselves represent a strategy, but are both important components of all these strategies. I wanted to list them here for discussion because they're just as important as the strategies they may be found in. And now we'll take a few minutes to step through the high level objectives and key considerations for each of these strategies. The value investing method has been around for a very long time. Popularized initially by Benjamin Graham and more recently by Warren Buffett, this method of investing aims to make long-term investments in companies which are presently trading for less than their intrinsic value as defined by numerical ratios such as the price to earnings ratio, price to book ratio, the current ratio, and the total ratio. Price to earnings is the share price divided by the per share earnings of a company over some 12 month period. It's common to see earnings stated either as a trailing 12 month or forward estimated earnings. Obviously there are potentially large differences between those two numbers, so please be sure of what you're looking at. The price to book ratio is the current share price, this time divided by the sum of assets minus liabilities of a company as stated on the balance sheet. The current ratio is the ratio of current assets divided by current liabilities. And the total ratio is a term that I've coined referring to all balance sheet assets divided by all liabilities. Sounds pretty straightforward, right? Just look at the numbers and pick the companies that are selling for a discount. These days it's relatively easy to locate all the financial information of a company needed to calculate these ratios. But that convenience also comes with a disadvantage. If everyone has these same values, then why is the company trading at a perceived discount? The full story is never told by the key numerical ratios, so additional research is needed. And we'll get into those details when we discuss the security selection process. To say it more concisely, value investing is about buying companies when they're on sale and selling them later once the share price has hopefully risen to meet your fundamental valuation estimate. The income strategy aims to generate returns via owning assets that have either an interest or dividend payment. Because these strategies rely directly on payments from the issuer, research into the financial condition of the entity is important. One way to evaluate the stability of a dividend payment is by checking the dividend payout ratio. This is the ratio of money paid out as a dividend divided by the net income of a company. As this ratio increases, there's less cash available to the company to ensure stable operations or weather unexpected events without impacting the dividend payment. So having a lower ratio suggests that the dividend payment may be more stable. Other financial factors such as free cash flow, cash and equivalents in current assets, and current liabilities can also be informative. It's also worth mentioning that when a company runs into a situation where they need more cash, they'll first reduce or suspend common stock dividends. Preferred stocks are next to be suspended, 
but in some cases the payments for preferred stock are cumulative, meaning that even if the dividend payment is delayed, it must still be eventually paid with no common stock dividends possible until the cumulative preferred are first satisfied. And bonds would certainly have a claim for payment above that of both preferred and common stock. Where the income and value strategies are looking largely at data from the past to arrive at a value for a stock, the growth strategy is largely dependent on estimates of future growth in revenue, earnings, units delivered, customers, or some other metric. Let's consider an example. XYZ Corporation has posted 25% year-over-year revenue growth for the past seven years and is currently trading at a price-to-earnings multiple of 45. This is for sure a value that would be considered too high by most, if not all, value strategies. But if the trend of revenue growth continues at the 25% rate, it won't take long for the company to be worth its current market price even by traditional valuation metrics. But the hope is that by then, the price-to-earnings ratio would have grown further, reflecting a share price that is becoming increasingly determined by anticipation for more future growth. Despite some of the eye-popping evaluation metrics, there is certainly a place for growth strategies within the portfolio of suitable investors. It's hard to argue against the performance that many of the top-name growth companies have delivered over recent years. Currencies are most often traded on the basis of macroeconomic factors, and there are a couple of different ways to trade them. The first is to do so in the Forex market. That highly liquid market is open 24 hours a day and features typically low commissions. But depending on your account size, time horizon, and percentage of your portfolio dedicated to this strategy, it may also be viable to trade currencies through electronically traded funds on the stock market. In this example, the gold and currency strategy will be implemented via ETFs due to the small percentage of assets allocated. Speaking of gold, even though it's not a currency, it's common to consider it as part of an overall currency strategy. Cash exists within all strategies from time to time as positions are sold and while waiting to put new positions on. It can also be the case that certain strategies intentionally scale up or down a cash position based on market activity, waiting for the right time to allocate funds. Don't be afraid to hold cash when it's appropriate. You'd be hard-pressed to find an investor that's dissatisfied with the performance of their brokerage cash over Q1 of 2020. But beyond being a defensive allocation, cash represents a trade that hasn't happened yet. Cash will allow you to move with a quickness when needed to take advantage of an emerging trend without impacting your other positions. Hedges play a similar role to cash in that they are intended to reduce the risk of an overall strategy by investing a minority percentage in an asset that will tend to move opposite of the primary investment. Hedge positions are used as protection and aren't typically intended to make money, although that can sometimes happen when both the hedge and main position go up. Inverse and inverse leveraged ETFs can be convenient securities to use as a hedge against stock and ETF positions. These funds are built to move either two times, three times, or inversely to the underlying asset. These inverse and leveraged ETFs carry risks associated with them that are not usually found with the underlying asset. Taking recent market history as an example, anyone following leveraged gold ETFs over the past few weeks would have seen that these securities are not always able to maintain the intended ratio to their benchmarks. Additionally, these ETFs can sometimes close and be liquidated in markets showing significant volatility. Another way to hedge a position is by using options, 
but they carry the downside of having an expiration date. In light of all of these factors, the strategies designed for our example investor will employ the minimum amount of inverse and leveraged ETFs needed to manage net exposure to the strategy. At this point, I'd like to quickly recap the strategy discussion before moving forward. We discussed a few strategies which are suitable for this investor, but there are many more. Examples include sector rotation, trend following, macro investing, and passive investing. But more is not always better. What's important is that the strategy or collection of strategies used in a portfolio are the ones most suitable for the investor and that each strategy achieves its own objective. Moving up the pyramid, the next step is to screen and select holdings that will comprise our strategies. For this investor, we will use a combination of ETFs and stocks due to the account size and strategies selected. An ETF is a collection of underlying assets designed to perform in a specific way with respect to either the general market or a specific asset or asset class. I mentioned previously that we would be using ETFs as directional hedges, but they're also helpful when diversification is needed. They can also be used to conveniently invest in assets such as gold that would not otherwise be accessible on the stock market. When considering which ETF to use, there are a few key points to consider. I tend to look first at assets under management and trade volume because this tells me how widely held and traded that particular ETF is. With size and liquidity concerns satisfied, I'll next look at the expense ratio. Many ETFs are around a 0.5% expense ratio with larger and more passive funds approaching 0.2%, and smaller, more actively managed and specialized funds could have much higher ratios. Building a strategy from individual stocks will require a fair bit of work additional to that required for ETFs. There are thousands of stocks traded on the market every day. Which ones are right for your strategy? How do you find the 10 to 25 companies needed amongst so many possibilities? A common method for starting this analysis is by performing a quantitative screening. One person doesn't have the time to manually analyze each stock on the market to identify the ones that might be suitable for their strategy. But certainly there are some general rules that would tend to make companies unsuitable for a given strategy. Let's take a closer look at the screening process for a value stock to illustrate the point. Here we can see an example set of quantitative screening parameters for a value strategy. These screeners are looking to filter companies which are too expensive in terms of price to earnings and price to book value as a first step. Anything more expensive than this isn't offering the discount we would like, so we discard those companies. Next, we are looking to filter companies which may be cheap in terms of earnings and assets, but perhaps have excessive debt, either on a current 12-month basis or in the long term. At a current ratio of 1, a company at least has current assets sufficient to meet the total of their current liabilities. But even this is no guarantee they can actually pay their current liabilities, and we'll see why when we get to the quantitative scoring part of the process. But for now these values will do. Finally, we have a look at volume and market cap. Investing in smaller companies can offer some challenges not faced by someone looking exclusively at large cap companies, so we put a cutoff in place. This cutoff is a bit permissive at only $200 million, but for sure anything smaller isn't interesting to this strategy and isn't worth consideration. The volume limit is intended to ensure that any companies found to be investable can be purchased or sold efficiently. A great position isn't worth holding if there's no one looking to buy when you're ready to sell. After using this screener, 
you'd be left with a list of about 600 or so companies. Still a sizable list, but far more manageable than where we started. This process can be repeated, incrementally tightening the parameters until you're left with a list of companies that's manageable. Even if everyone is looking at the same balance sheets when calculating those ratios, there will still be different assessments of the same company. I think we'd agree that if a company has cash on the balance sheet, we could give full value to that asset in a potential liquidation scenario. But what about inventory? That would certainly depend on the nature of the inventory and exactly where it's located. What percentage of face value could be recovered from a warehouse full of widgets that nobody wants? 10%? 20%? And the story repeats for each balance sheet item. How about accounts receivable? What discount would you place on the face value of accounts receivable in the next 12 months? What is the value of the property, plant, and equipment account for an unprofitable mining company? With these questions answered, I would next look to establish a numerical scoring system that would allow me to quickly identify companies that are performing better on a relative basis. For example, I could build a proprietary scoring method to evaluate cash flow, balance sheet health, and overall value. All of these scores would take into account the corrections we just discussed to arrive at a metric that hopefully ranks these companies accurately. Now I should have a ranked list of companies that are suitable for my strategy. And after operating that system for some time, I'd begin to see the level of scoring for each area where I might want to establish a filter. It makes sense that companies with lower scoring might not work as well as higher scoring companies. But it can also be the case that certain companies will appear to have exceptionally good scoring, way out of line from the group. Pay close attention to these companies because it could be with very good reason that they appear to be such a good deal. Not every detail of a company can be observed numerically. Delving further into the gray areas, now we are evaluating questions which do not have a numerical answer. Qualitative screening requires both common sense and an informed opinion. Here we want to filter any companies which look good numerically, but perhaps have some type of weakness. An easy example is pending litigation. Both news headlines and company filings can indicate if any pending litigation exists. We also want to check that the current market environment is one that is likely to be conducive to success for this company. If something doesn't check out, then we discard the company and consider another one. We only need enough companies to achieve proper diversification. And if we get to the end of the last step with only five companies, then that's okay. ETFs can be a place to allocate funds if the strategy will still be held in the portfolio, or perhaps that's a good indicator that holding some cash is a good idea instead. What I would not do is take those five companies and allocate 20% of the strategy funds to each of them. Actually, a lack of qualified companies for a strategy could serve as a valuable input and a potential decision point to consider reallocating at the strategy level. And that brings us to our final topic of the day, risk management. At some point previously, we defined an allocation of assets between the selected strategies in the portfolio. In a similar manner to the process used to select individual stocks, it's possible to build a system to dynamically set these allocations based on market conditions. The method of exactly how to transition between allocations needs to be one that's suitable for the investor and reasonable to implement. You wouldn't want a system that is reallocating more than is needed. There are two components to this level of the process, the inputs to be considered and the potential outcomes. Whenever someone brings up the Fed, it usually isn't to pay them a compliment, 
but today I'm going to do exactly that. The St. Louis Fed website operates a free service called FRED. FRED is a wealth of high-level information that could be pertinent when evaluating the health of the overall market. The trick is to determine which data points you consider and what is the relative weighting. And what about rates of change? Do you consider those in addition to or instead of the absolute values? Someone looking to manage risk could build one or many tools to help assess the current market health and potentially indicate what we have in store. On the slide, I've listed a few of the data types I tend to look at when considering when and how to reallocate a portfolio. I believe all of this information is available on the FRED website. So for the sake of discussion, let's imagine I thought about the needs of my example investor and constructed what I think is the perfect black box system to tell me when to go from an aggressive to a defensive allocation. Now I have a method for knowing when to take action. What action will I take? For this investor, we established a set of binary allocations. This means when the risk management system that we just constructed crosses certain levels, we'll reallocate in step increases and decreases. But that's just one potential method. It could also make sense to update the model on a bi-weekly basis and allocate in a more granular manner based on a numerical output of the black box at those fixed intervals. I want to thank you for sticking with me as we discuss the portfolio pyramid process for constructing and managing a financial portfolio. To quickly recap, we started by looking at the cash portion of an investor's holdings, aiming to provide a stable base of capital that would allow for continuity in operating the selected investment strategies even through tough financial times. We discussed a few of the possible strategies one could use along with some of the considerations that go into their selection. Following that, we used the value strategy as an example to illustrate how to go from the thousands of stocks on the market down to a manageable list of companies that can be analyzed in detail following a defined quantitative and qualitative process. And finally, we touched on risk management and the idea that a single asset allocation may not be ideal for all market conditions. No one should leave this discussion with the impression that the details in the example case are suitable for you or your needs because they very likely are not. Your needs and situation are unique. What I hope you do take away from this discussion is the idea that a data-driven process for managing a portfolio is something that you can build for yourself if you want. I'll again reference the objective of the presentation, aiming to provide education and information on the topic of portfolio construction and management. None of this material should be construed as investment, financial, tax, legal, or other advice. If you'd like to get in contact with me to give me feedback on this presentation, or if you'd like to know more about the services offered by Lowercase Capital LLC, I invite you to reach out to me by email at anthony at lowercasecapital.biz or by phone at 214-717-4866. And you can also go to the website www.lowercasecapital.biz to find our firm brochure and other important documents. Thanks again for joining me today.